with uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, uh, if your Bibles are open. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Won't that be great? Why don't you wish you'd come back tonight? I do. I really do. I, I mean, I would skip vacation later this year. I'd skip all that for Jesus to come back tonight. But we, we, we read on. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the surety of it, the purity of it. Lord, uh, that it is really a lamp unto our feet. We pray that it would be just a midweek refreshing. Thank you for each person you've brought here tonight. Those that are watching online, Lord, I pray that uh, this would minister to us all. Lord, remove all the distractions that would come against this time in your word. Help us to grow in your grace tonight. And Lord, really, that you would just be in our presence giving us your peace and your joy, and just purifying us through this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Kyle Eidelman, in his uh, intro to um, Grace is Greater, it's a book that's blessed me, uh, he says this, he says, it's my prayer that you won't miss grace, but rather powerfully experience the grace effect in your life. And no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, will personally experience the truth that grace is greater. He says, grace is powerful enough to erase your guilt. Grace is big enough to cover your shame. Grace is real enough to heal your relationships. Grace is strong enough to hold you up when you're weak. Grace is sweet enough to cure your bitterness. Grace is satisfying enough to deal with your disappointment. Grace is beautiful enough to redeem your brokenness. Grace explained is necessary, but grace experienced is essential. Do you agree with that? Grace has to be experienced, and it's essential. Many believers are still trying to live a godly life apart from grace. I think there, I think there are believers that are trying to live, right, I just want to do right. I want to live right today. I want to make it a good week. I want to please God. Check this list, check this list. Which, if that's the way you're living, trying to do it apart from grace, it'll make you frustrated, a Pharisee, or in time rather carnal, and you'll go back to being worldly again. Others are unaware of this next work of grace, this post-salvation work of grace, that's impossible to live without but we can do the impossible when it's flowing through our life. Did you hear me? It's impossible to live without this grace, but we can actually do the impossible with this grace. And this is what Paul wants the church uh, here to know uh, as he's writing to Titus, who's a pastor. He wants them to know and experience and live this out. Not just know it, but to be able to live it out. Lives that are growing in grace. If you're taking notes, you see 
the title tonight, Grace That Grows Us. And I just have two uh, bullet points that we'll look at tonight. The first, if you're taking notes, grace that guides us. We need a guide, don't we? Now, we have Jesus, but Jesus manifests that guidance through his grace. In verse 11, look at verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Verse 11 starts from the standpoint of what I would call saving grace, right? That's that song you sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me. That's what we call saving grace. Now, it's the same grace, but that's the first kind of bestowed upon us grace at the point of salvation. Now, it was grace that actually opened our ears in the first place and our eyes, but that amazing grace is that saving grace. Now, this is similar to Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is what? The gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's the grace of God. It's not works. We didn't earn it. We didn't do enough laps for God, any of that stuff. This was that saving grace that brought us, and for me, back in June 1995, to the altar, and I experienced saving grace that day. Even though I had notions of grace, that day I experienced saving grace. What we first have to understand and appreciate about saving grace, and all pure grace, because all pure grace comes from God, is that this grace and all grace that comes from God is completely outside of us. It's coming from outside of us to us. It's like the sun coming up after a dark night. You and I have no control over how the sun and the moon operate, do we? You, there's not a thing you and I can do about it. No matter where you live on the earth, uh, it all is set in motion by God. The sun's going to come up. You can't stop the sun from coming up. It will remove the darkness every time it does. We have absolutely nothing to do with its appearance. Now, we benefit when it appears. This morning was beautiful, wasn't it? It doesn't look like tonight, but this morning was not a cloud in the sky. We benefit, but we have nothing to do with how the sun appears. It comes whether we anticipate it, remember it's going to come. It always is coming. It's happening outside of us because God is the one that put it in motion. So grace appears because God has caused it to appear. And it says right here, for the grace that brings salvation has what? Appeared to all men. Way back in Genesis, Noah was given the grace of God by the goodness of God. It wasn't like, you know, God looked on the earth and said, you know, Noah was made differently than all of these other guys and all these other women. No, he was, he was made of the same elements as everybody else, but he found grace. The grace of God appeared to him, without which he would have perished with the rest of the world. It's the first time, by the way, I've mentioned this before, that's the first time grace is ever mentioned there uh, towards Noah in the book of Genesis. But with Jesus coming to the earth, he personally brought grace, the grace of God and the salvation of God, in himself. Remember his name, God with us. But you could also say grace with us. I mean, there's no title for that. I'm just saying he is the manifestation of grace. There's no title that says he's not called grace with us, but he is the giver of grace. So with him comes grace, and he has physically appeared, and with his conquering of sin and death, he now extends grace to all men. 
with his death and his resurrection, he has grace to give to all who are thirsty, all who are weary, all who are desiring to be transformed and experience the forgiveness of sin. His grace is the light that opens our eyes in the darkness. But like the Word of God, it continues. Now, that light we need, we're in total darkness, right? Remember Jesus healed a number of blind people, right? It was always a picture of salvation. Whenever he healed blind people, it's a picture of they're in total darkness. He comes along, touches them, heals them in different ways. One time he spit in the dirt, right, and put it in their eyes. Other times he would just touch people or, or speak. But nevertheless, every time he did that, it was a picture of coming out of darkness into the glorious light of salvation. And so he is the light that opens our eyes. His grace opens our eyes. But like the Word of God, after salvation, the grace continues to be a light. It keeps the light. The light never goes back off. That grace, once the light has come on, the grace that's in the room, the grace that's in our heart, is going to be a guide to our new life in Christ. And we're going to need additional and continual grace, aren't we? You think you're going to need more grace tomorrow, each day? We're going to need more grace. Because guess what? Our flesh still resides in us. We still have a battle of the new man and the old man. I can get an amen on that. I'm sure of it, right? You know, We still have a battle of the new man and the old man. The old man creeps up in lots of different ways, just always wants his or her own way, right? It's very selfish, very self-centered, very excuse-driven, complaining, grumbling. That was the whole problem with Israel. Is it, it, lots of complaining, lots of grumbling. That's the old nature in us. We need the grace. We're going to need continual grace. So our flesh still resides within us. And until we pass into our heavenly home, we also have the enemy to deal with too. Our flesh still resides within us, and the enemy still pesters us until the day we die. He never gives up. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Satan doesn't get tired. He's a spirit being. The demons don't get tired. They're spirit beings. Angels don't get tired. They're spirit beings. Now, there's a big difference between angels and demons because angels are holy and demons are wretched. But in the spirit realm, until there's the final reckoning of the lake of fire, the, the spiritual realm, none of the spirit beings get tired. The enemy doesn't get That's why he could uh, wear, tried to wear Jesus down for 40 days and what? 40 nights. You and I wouldn't last 10 days and 10 nights. But the enemy doesn't have, he doesn't get tired. Satan doesn't get tired. The demons don't get tired. We get tired, and he knows we get tired. And it said he was going to come back to Jesus at an opportune time, didn't it? Well, our opportune time is again and again and again. So you'll have your own flesh to deal with, but we'll also have the enemy, and he will not leave us alone. So we're saved by grace. We're going to keep needing grace. Now, the enemy also has, after salvation, you might say, well, now that I'm saved... Maybe he'll work on all the lost people instead of me. Well, he has a blanket coverage plan for the lost people. 
He doesn't really have to do that much for lost people. They're kind of an autopilot. Enough sin infrastructure, if you will, a pleasure infrastructure, world system infrastructure. That's on like cruise control. He's actually spending more time attacking the believer. You know, you look at the Bible, he was going after the prophets, the, the apostles, the disciples, the people that were righteous. I mean, in all the world, you think he was worried about all the ungodly people? No, he's in heaven saying, I want to talk about Job. Right? That's who he wanted to zero in on. He wasn't talking about the, the really uh, unrighteous guy down the street from Job that uh, was living this like sinful life. He didn't care. He's like, I got them in chains. I want to talk about Job. Let me add him. Or your life. You might not be as righteous as Job, but if you're living for Christ, the enemy does know who you are. You might have some low-level demon, but you've got somebody paying attention to the fact that you could have a positive influence on someone else coming to Jesus, and the enemy doesn't like that. So he has new plans to pressure us as believers into giving up and going back to the world. Now, how do we know this is true? Look at the text. Uh, it tells us all these things. We're going to have to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, live soberly, righteously. This is, looks like a lot of hard work, doesn't it? It's like we're going against the grain here. Swimming upstream as the salmons have to do, trying to get all the way, all the way past all those waterfalls until they can get home, and then they die there, by the way. But uh, it's a sad ending. But, but new life comes from it, circle of life. But the enemy has new plans to get us. He always has plans to get us to go back to the world. But God is great. I mean, I, you know, I, I got saved in 1995. Some of you have been saved a lot longer than I have. I'm coming up on 25 years next year of salvation. I've never gone back to the world, ever. I mean, have I, have I had thoughts that are worldly? Of course, but I've never gone back to the world. I've never, gone, I've never gotten in that proverbial spiritual car and driven back to the old place that I came out of. I've never done that. I mean, it, we, we've all had sin, but we've not, again, I've never mailed in and said, that's it, you know, like Demas. Forsake, I'm out of here. Judas, I'm out of here. I'm going back to where I came from, or maybe they never passed over in the first place. But when Israel escaped Egypt and slavery, the enemy convinced the majority, isn't it amazing? Israel comes out of Egypt, and the enemy convinced the majority of those that came out of Egypt that to go back to slavery and back to Egypt would be preferable. Doesn't that boggle your mind sometimes when you read that? You're thinking... I think I'd rather live in a desert with Moses leading and God providing all the food and everything than be in slavery again. People whipping me over the back and, and under them and you know, just kind of... But the enemy convinced them that would be preferable. Matter of fact, so much so that 10 of the 12 spies didn't even want to go into the promised land. They're never going to happen. God's not going to be... I know he can do the Red Sea and all, but he can't really do anything else beyond that, right? So the enemy lies to us but the grace of God that opened our eyes to salvation. Again, this is, this is what Paul is writing. He goes, this grace that you have is going to expand as you cling to Jesus. But the grace of God that opened our eyes to salvation now gives us the desire to live according to his holiness and his righteousness. Let me say that again. His grace gives us the desire to live righteously. 
It was never the desire pre-salvation for me. I did have a, we all have before salvation, some, we have feelings of guilt because we have a conscience. When the Holy Spirit comes in, the Holy Spirit is far greater than a conscience. Everyone has a conscience, unsaved people. Even Pinocchio had one, right? And he was made of wood, right? So everyone has a conscience. We all have a conscience. But post-salvation, the Holy Spirit is far, it would be like comparing uh, you know, a candle to the sun. The Holy Spirit being the sun, a candle being the conscience. That'd be the difference. I mean, we have now the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes in and he sheds abroad, the Bible says, grace in our hearts. He sheds abroad grace in our hearts. And that grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit gives us this desire for holiness and righteousness. Because I didn't have it pre-salvation, and you probably didn't either, but you might have had guilt, which is not the same. I don't, we don't have guilt by the Holy Spirit. We have conviction of the Holy Spirit. We have correction of the Holy Spirit, right? We have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. These are differences than guilt, 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 guilt. That pre-salvation. But grace then gives us this desire to be holy because I didn't desire to be holy. I just desired to be successful or a decent person in the community or whatever's in it for me. I mean, people have their own. That's why everyone being their own God is a really bad idea because one person might say, well, I'm like Genghis Khan. I just want to take over. Other person says, well, I just want to be a good citizen. Well, it doesn't always work that way. But grace comes in, and it gives us now this desire to be holy, to be righteous. Now, if that desire isn't there, if someone says, hey, I'm saved, but I have no desire to be righteous, if that desire isn't there or never has been there, then it's very possible that the first work of saving grace and conversion has never truly taken place. Now, that's not me just saying that. The Scriptures say that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. He says, look, you know, if you don't have a desire to be holy, you don't have a desire to be righteous, you don't have a desire to grow in your faith, that's a red flag, the Apostle Paul was saying. That's it's not good. Jesus it made the same point with the parable of the sower, right? You know, if, if you're choked out by the world, that's not a good thing, that all of a sudden these things are choked out. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, same uh, epistle, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. So there's this newness that springs up. And again, that's the Holy Spirit. That spring, it's springing forth this desire to be holy, not to look good to people, but to be in right standing with the Lord. It's a desire to be, not a desire. I don't have a desire when, when I'm really kind of walking in that just good spot with the Lord. I don't have a desire to perform for God. I just have a desire to walk with God like Enoch, just walking with the Lord, right? Communion. That's what we took, the word communion. We take communion. It's to be in unison because he puts his heart in us, and he does it by grace. It's undeserved. It can't be bought. It can't be earned. It's given to us. But even as we have a new desire to live pleasing the Lord, as we have the desire to live pleasing the Lord, our flesh is still really weak. The desire's there, 
but our flesh is still really, really weak. And our enemy is very, very persistent. Go back again. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't, have, he doesn't need a vacation. He doesn't take days off. He's working till the end, right up to the gates of hell. Jesus spoke about the gates of hell, right? Right up until the end, the enemy's going to... Matter of fact, did you know that the world will get way worse near the end? The, the dark force of darkness will actually generate more effort than ever. They'll all be pedaling as hard as they can against... Where, the, the Scripture called the, the wearing out of the saints, working against uh, those that love the Lord. So we have our flesh that's really weak, and we have an enemy that's very persistent. And Paul wrote in Romans 7, verses 22 and 23, For I delight in the law of God. You know, when we get saved, all of a sudden we like the commandments of God. We're like, I like to hear the word of God. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against what? My mind. Warring against my mind. So we have this war going on. Paul says, isn't that an interesting, two, it's two verses in our, but it wasn't two verses when it was originally written. It's just a phrase. We have this delight in the law of the Lord. We're like, all of a sudden, the, tablet, the, the law is written on the tablets of our heart, and that's done by grace, and we delight in the Lord. And the way that you kind of know this is when you first get saved, all of a sudden, songs that didn't make any sense to you, all of a sudden, you're like, all these words minister to me now. This hymn that I thought as a kid was just the most boring song ever, all of a sudden is like a glass of fresh water because our soul delights now in the law of the Lord. But he says, I see in my members this other part warring against my mind. Where is all of our battle? In the mind. And the mind is attached to the heart. But we're told here in verse 12, Move to verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're told here, starting in verse 12, teaching us that we're told we can act, Paul is saying we can actually learn through grace, because of verse 11 starts, it's, we know that the whole preface here is that it's all coming through grace. Go back to verse 11. For the grace, then it goes into. All of this is coming out of the same work of grace. The same work of grace, the same hose. All these other things are coming. Good thing, things that we need to survive and to walk through this world. But he's saying that we can actually learn to win this intense spiritual battle that we're engaged in. But we have some intentional responsibilities to exercise in this battle. So we're given a battle that would be otherwise unwinnable without the help of God, but we're told to go win it. We're going to need grace, right? Make sense? Remember, grace comes from outside of us. It comes from outside of us. God said, you're going to have to get that from me. But I'll be faithful. Are you going to be faithful? He'll never let go of us. Are we going to do our part and say we're going to cling to you, Lord? Look back at the text. Uh, it says, teaching us, denying ungodliness. That means to resist it. To say, I'm not, I'm not going back 
there again. I used to live in ungodly life. I'm not going back. Denying it, resisting it. The worldly lust that war against our soul. To live soberly. To say, Lord, I'm going to be right-minded. Righteously. Godly. Looking for the blessed hope. So we have some denying to do, some living to do, and some looking upward to do, according to the text. We have some denying to do, some living to do, and some looking upward to do. Those are our instructions. You don't have to be good at them. You just have to do it, and then the grace will flow. That makes sense? You don't have to understand Anything about electricity, just put the socket, you know, put the plug in the socket, right? You, you, when they're really little, you put coverings there because you don't want them to learn about it with a finger. But once you're old enough, you don't need to know anything about how Edison came up with this, if it's true that Franklin got hit by, you know, if, if his kite got hit by lightning, all that kind of stuff, whether it's true or not, all that stuff, you don't need to know any of how uh, electricity works, just if someone says, hey, you need a vacuum. I don't want a vacuum. Plug this thing in and get going. That's what God's saying to us. Just plug it in and then watch me work. Obedience is the initiator of this next work of grace. It was obedience that brought you salvation. Jesus said, you're going to have to confess that you're a sinner. That takes obedience. You're going to have to know that I'm the only way. That takes faith and obedience. All of these things. And it's the same process here. And how does all this happen? I mean, you know, we, you, if, if I say, hey, take this cord over to that outlet, you have to have enough, your legs have to work, or you have to some way to get over there to plug it in. Well, that getting over there is grace. Because God says, all right, if you're willing to do it, I'm going to give you the grace to do it. So how, do all, how does all this work? Do we just will ourselves? We're going to will ourselves into living godly and righteous. I'm going to will myself to finally living the way that the great men are like John Bunyan and, uh, you know, D.L. Moody and Spurgeon. We're gonna, I'm going to will myself to that kind of life. No, there's nothing good in us. That won't work. You can't will your way to it. There's nothing good in us. But it is an act of the will. You see the difference? You cannot will yourself, but yet it's an act of the will. And it's, here's the difference. You're surrendering to the lordship of Christ not willing yourself to be a great accomplisher of these things. You're surrendered to the lordship, and the lordship of Christ now allows you to deny, live, and look up. It's the surrender that actually is, okay, that, now I have the energy to go across and plug this in, where the grace will now flow. Then we, as we say, Lord, I'm surrendering my will to your lordship, then we ask for the grace, Lord, help me abide in Jesus. Help me abide in you. Help me to, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled, filled with a lot of things, the Holy Spirit, but also filled with grace, filled with love, filled with the gifts of the Spirit. The filling is the Lord I'm willing to be willing to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it's the asking that initiates. It was the same way at the point of salvation. We asked, 
would you please save me? And Jesus said, yeah. Now we say, we ask, will you please give me the grace to go plug this in and then be connected to you so I'm able to deny, live, and look up, as the text tells us. Uh, there was, this is author or anonymous, author unknown. The greater perfection a soul aspires after, the more dependent it is upon divine grace. I'll read it again. The greater perfection a soul desires, the more dependent it is upon divine grace. And this goes back to what Jesus said. We would hunger and thirst for righteousness while we also hunger and thirst for the grace to live righteously. That's the grace that guides us. Last thing we want to look at tonight, the grace that guards us. We're glad it guides us. It will guide us, but it also guards us. It is also a shield about us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us, this being Jesus, of course, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Oh, I wish this was true of the whole body of Christ. Can you imagine what would take place in our nation if this verse was actually the church? I was thinking about today, and I've said it before, but I believe the most um, inaccurate statement probably in our entire country is on the dollar bill in God we trust. I believe it's the most inaccurate statement anywhere to be found. It, it, it is completely the opposite in our nation today. It's not in God we trust. It's everything but God we trust. And we know because people are flaunting every sin against him and saying that you know, none of this matters and we've evolved past this and all these kind of things. And Israel had the same thing. Eventually, They had a temple, but they did Jesus comes along and says, this people worships me with their lips. But he said, My, their hearts are far from me. So they, they had the right wording, but it wasn't there. They hadn't been transformed. But again, if, if the people of God were purified and zealous for good works, not working for salvation, but working out salvation through grace, we would actually see a great many people come to the Lord because we would actually be a spirit-filled body of Christ as opposed to just kind of barely getting by, getting, getting through to heaven with wood, hay, and stubble, and yet is by fire. Read the book of Jude for that last part. But again in verse 14, who gave himself for us. We see again that the initiator of our pardon, the initiator of our protection, and our purification is Jesus. We didn't do anything to deserve it or get the ball rolling. It comes from him. He came down out of heaven. No one said, you know what, you know, I think Jesus should be born in Bethlehem in a manger. To no, no one had any idea this was going to, this is what God designed. That's how it went down because God said, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to send my son. And no one's going to know about it except for a couple of shepherds and the things like that. It all was God initiating. And everything since then is the same way. It always God stepping into our lives and he himself who gave himself that he might redeem us it's outside of us he's already redeemed us if you're saved you've already been redeemed I've already been redeemed from every lawless deed isn't that great because if one was not redeemed we're still condemned so every lawless deed praise God for that 
And now presently, he's purifying us and in purify uh, for himself his own special people. So now he's presently purifying us, which is not always an easy process for us. It's not, not hard for God. God doesn't lose any sleep over our stubbornness. We lose sleep over our stubbornness. He doesn't lose any sleep. He doesn't need to sleep, and he doesn't sleep. He sleeps in our slumbers, the Bible says. But we can lose sleep over our own process because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So it can be a little bit rough for us because sometimes we don't, we don't want to move along in grace. We want to sit down and pout for a little while. But he will chasten us out of love, and he's purifying us for himself to become his own special people. Now, this isn't special like pious. We're holy. Uh, some of your Bibles might say peculiar. Some of your, your translations may say peculiar. It also could mean chosen, set apart, right? Uh, we think of the children, they were the cho God's chosen people. Well, the church is the same, right? God has chosen us. We have to choose him back. I say, when I get into discussions with people about uh, you know, Calvinism, if they just are you know, really on five-point Calvinism, and say, you know, did you choose your spouse or did your spouse choose you? Yes, right? God chose us and we chose back. When he initiated through grace, right? He gives us grace, but we have to say yes. And we have. And so now this work of grace, uh, Jesus is uh, setting us apart for what? Good works. We were prepared for good works. Good works don't save us. They come after the saved, right? The saved people will now walk in good works, but good works will never save us. There's a lot of people that are doing, quote-unquote, good works out there, but it won't bring salvation. But the grace that we've now received will now do good works. We'll now care. Uh, we, we, you know, if, if someday the United States government says, no more tax benefits at all for your giving to God. That shouldn't change you one bit. You should always be giving because God has already given you. It shouldn't have anything to do with Now, I like that our country has that benefit that's fallen under a Judeo-Christian ethic that goes back a long ways. That's a blessing. But that may, one day they may be long gone, and yet we still have a requirement to give generously to the Lord and generously to other people. That Jesus, you know, he didn't say, and the Good Samaritan, because he was going to get a tax benefit, he decided to get off his donkey and, you know, that kind of, there's nothing that, that's not in the text at all. That was never part of the deal. But we now have a, a desire by him to do the works that he set before us, and we're going to need his daily grace to become increasingly pure in our faith increasingly humble. The longer you walk with Christ, the more aware of your flaws you become. And then not the other way around. When you first get saved, you're like, I'm saved. You know, you're just really happy, and you're like, you're like, and you know, you're telling everybody, and, and, and it, that's great. And, after, and, and you're like, man, I used to be so bad and all this stuff. And then 10 years later, you're like, man, I'm really still a mess. You know, that kind of thing. You know, 20 years later, you're like, wow, I really, uh, it, it's like all, it, it's like the binoculars coming into focus. Everything, now you see all the, then you're, on, then you're on a microscope and you can see every little thing. It's like the Holy Spirit is giving you this x-ray vision on the inside. And you're like, 
Lord, I am wretched. At the end of Job, Job says he was, I mean, he was the, right, he was the most righteous man on earth. At the end of it, he's like, I abhor myself. It's amazing. Even Satan thought he was a righteous dude at the end. Job says, I am really filthy. That's where Paul, Paul was at. But the, the longer Paul walked, Lord, the more. And it wasn't just gamesmanship of saying, I, I'm really, really bad. But then everyone, no, no, you're really good, Paul. You're, you know, it wasn't that kind of thing that people do. They're just fishing for compliments or, no, you're, really, you're really a really great guy. You know, that kind of thing. It's genuine. So we're going to need daily grace to become increasingly pure in our faith, increasingly humble. We need to be more humble, don't we? We need to be more pure in our faith. Uh, increasingly set apart. We, we need the world to be able to see a difference in us. If they can't see any difference in us, then there's no, there's no light shining. Increasingly surrendered. Increasingly zealous for work, good work. I want to be as zealous for good work as a lion is for meat. Right? <laughs> zealous. I like his animal shows, by the way. I, I, my wife's like, are you watching another one? Have you not... Well, this one's a little bit different. She goes, it's the exact same thing. I'm like, yeah, but this one's really cool. And so I just, I, I like that kind of stuff. But, um, but Jesus, his body and blood were a once and for all thing. But his grace for the believer's walk, well, for our daily walk, that grace, that saving grace we started out at the beginning, that saving grace is a one-time thing. Poured out, salvation, Name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? But this daily supply of grace, well, it's like manna in the wilderness. They had to get one little bit for each day, one little bit. For each. You're going to need another outpouring of grace tomorrow on Thursday and another one on Friday and another one on Saturday, which is why you have to abide in Jesus. You have to, the, as long as the branch is abiding, the roots are grabbing the water, the sun, every, it's all working together, the soil, the sun, the, you know, the water. It's, but if the, you take the branch off the tree, it withers and dies, doesn't it? So we have to abide. It's a daily supply. D.L. Moody said, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months. Nor can he inhale a sufficient number, amount of air into his lungs with one breath to sustain life for a week to come. We are permitted to draw upon God's store of grace from day to day as we need it, and we will need it. And this is why he says at the end, speak these things, verse 15, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise. He's saying you've got to, know, you've got to remind the church, exhort them that they have to live by grace because people will forget these things and will start just kind of going through rote motion instead of praying, Lord, I need your grace today. I need help me to abide in you. Help me to grow. Help. He's just asking for that grace. And Lord, I, I, I'm willfully surrendering my will to your will that that grace would flow as we plug in to the wall. And then he says that grace is just going to keep flowing. Stay plugged in. Stay abiding. Stay knitted. He'll be faithful to supply it, won't he? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the saving grace, but also the sustaining grace that trains us, that helps us to deny and to live and to look up. And Lord, we want to be more expectant of your return. But until you return, we want to be zealous for good works. And we just ask that you would give us the grace to walk this out by faith 
and that our faith would grow and that the grace in us, Lord, we would give that grace to others and they need the grace too. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.